If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. Welcome back to the Change Physician Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Cady, joined by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, and we are here with our guest, Dr. Marcy Larson, who's a general pediatrician. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Well, I know that your journey is has some unique um, twists and turns and transitions, but we always want to start from the beginning. And do you mind telling the audience why you chose to go into medicine in the first place? No, I tell people all the time that I really started and became a physician because of in and in spite of what happened to my family, actually. So growing up as a kid, I just didn't have much exposure to medicine at all. I would go to my yearly checkups. I that was about it. I lived in rural Iowa, so we just had a family practice doctor, and that was my total exposure until my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was just before my sophomore year of high school. So she obviously started going through treatments, and we became very familiar very quickly with the medical system. And then a year later, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer. So the whole process started all over again. So just when we had kind of finished all of my mom's chemo and radiation, and she was just kind of on some maintenance tamoxifen, and then we started over. And I had both of my grandparents actually had had cancer as well. And they all went through the same cancer center in Iowa, in Mason City, Iowa, and I think they felt like they knew the Peterson family well, right, because they took care of so many members of that, of our family. So my dad went through all of his treatment for his colon cancer. His colon cancer, he had a just a huge tumor, and they actually did not think he would do well compared to my mom's breast cancer tumor, which was much, much smaller. Um, but it turns out my dad was great, um, finished his chemo, his radiation, and did awesome. And then just a couple of days before I was to graduate from high school, um, my mom went in. She kind of had some chest pain. They thought maybe she had pneumonia. She took a chest x-ray, and there were, was cancer on, the, on her ribs. And so she went and had scans done and had metastatic breast cancer all over in her liver and all her bones. And um, so then everything kind of changed again. And I remember many people in my small town saying, are you still going to go away to college? Right. Um, We had a little two-year college right in town. So everyone kind of assumed that I would switch and just sort of stay home. But my mom was quite insistent that I go off to college. They moved me into the dorms and um, that day actually they moved me in. My mom fell on the stairs in my dorm room and broke her hip because it was so full of cancer. And they didn't tell me, interestingly. I just suddenly, my parents just 
packed up in the pickup truck. I gave my mom like a kiss goodbye through the window. I had no idea why they were just taking off like that suddenly, but they didn't want me to worry. And she, of course, was in a lot of pain with a broken hip. So I was sent off and they told me weeks later, actually, that she had broken her hip because they did not want me to change, to, you know, decide not to go away to school and not to stay. So, I mean, that, that was a lot of just what ended up happening. So one summer in college, then I spent a summer at the cancer center with the doctor who had treated all four members of my family and um, worked with them as my mom's cancer was getting worse. Uh, she ultimately died over Christmas break of my junior year. Um, so anyway, and that was junior years, the year you kind of decide, right? And so I wrote my personal statement saying, I didn't really know if this was a good or bad. And I remember my very first sentence was, I'm looking to go to medical school because of and in spite of what has happened with my mom. So that's kind of how my med school journey ended up beginning. Um, I got accepted to the University of Iowa, which was a great place to go to school and obviously far cheaper for me too, since it was in state and uh, started on there. And then I met my husband in medical school as well. So yes. So, so that with, was great too. With, with that though, it, because you know, there's, there's these different kind of themes that we see where people go to medical school. And this one really is, is because you had medical experiences with your family, mm-hmm. it sounds like. So because of that, did you have any expectations of what medical school would be like for you? Or was it more just the path that you, you saw towards the final destination? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was really challenging because I was worried that I would think too much about my mom and about stuff that was going on with my mom. I know that last summer before she ultimately died, she actually she died of breast cancer, but she really died of heart failure because the only drugs that actually would work against the cancer um, was like adriamycin, which ended up affecting her heart and putting her into heart failure. Um, I remember uh, sitting in her hospital room one day and I of course would lay against her and I could hear her heart and it just sounded weird and the medical students came in with the attending physician and uh, they were listening to the heart and of course they're being grilled and the attending physician said what animal does her heart sound like what does it sound like and this poor girl really had no idea what to say. And I, of course, had listened, had heard my mom. And I thought to myself, well, it sounds like a horse galloping. (laughs) Because she had this, you know, I mean, that's what her heart sounded like. And of course, I was right. (laughs) And that poor medical student, I don't even, I can't even remember what she said. She said some animal just like made up on the spot because she had no clue. (laughs) Um, But I know my mom said to me, if you're going to do this, Um, you have to promise me that you'll get someone to clean your house and you'll get someone to do things because she was really worried about what my family life would be like. And she knew she wouldn't be around to be able to help me. So, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, um, you know, just, you know, the training that you go through and, and 
the things that you've been through with your your uh, immediate family during you know your upbringing and and um, what drew that that drew you into medicine and you know dis- despite that um, intention of helping people and, and making mm-hmm. a difference were there was there a point in your medical school training or um, even you going into you went into pediatrics or in your residency yes. that just you know because I think it's good for us to highlight um, especially for other physicians that may feel like they're alone is there anything that from the outside looking in you know you have a certain perception of medicine did anything shift or anything anything change at some point in your training you realize something wasn't right or not what you well, thought very much so I would say the year between our first and second year of medical school at the University of Iowa, they had this program called MECO, where you could go out into the community. And a lot of times you went to a family practice office and you stayed there for the summer. And I actually went back to that Mason City, Iowa, where my family had all been treated um, and stayed there. And I did a different week in every in all of these specialties. I just did one week in everything. So one week in surgery, one week in OBGYN, one week in family practice, one week in pediatrics. And that is when things changed for me because originally I really felt like my mom had kind of called me to do that a little bit. I was thinking more along treating adults and just this calling that I needed to do something beyond myself, I guess. And when I hit that week of pediatrics, I never wanted it to end. It was just so fun. I mean, I just loved it. I loved taking care of the kids. I loved the other pediatricians I was working with. It just felt right. And it was totally different than what I had felt before. And instead of this like um, desire and feeling that I needed to help others and do things for others. It just became more fun for me. Hmm. And I absolutely loved it. And then from that point on, everything kind of changed to point me in that way of doing pediatrics for good and forever. Yeah. And, and it's funny too, my first rotation of my third year, we st- I started in surgery and I went to the VA hospital, which, you know, you can't get much different than from pediatrics than doing surgery at a VA hospital. But I went through and the chief resident went through all of us brand new third year medical students and he pointed to us and he told us what we were going to do. And he got to me and he said, pediatrics. And I was so mad that he pigeonholed me like that, but, but he was a hundred percent right. I mean, I am a pediatrician. That's just what I am. And that's how I am. And it just fits for me. So, yeah, I'm curious. Um, when did you start having children during your career? Uh, we had our kids our second year of residency. So okay. I met my husband formally <laughs> the kind of the first day of our second year of medical school. It, it was really funny the way it turned out because he had sort of seen me the first year and had made it a goal. He was going to meet me the second year. He'd like <laughs> circled me in the little herd book and we had sort of said a couple of words, but I actually hadn't remembered. It, it was kind of funny because in hindsight, he was he broke his arm the first year and I would catch him staring at me occasionally. And I thought he was totally creepy. And it was not until 
after we started dating that my best friend said, you know, that's the guy with the broken arm that you used to think was creepy. And like, oh my gosh, it is. I just didn't even remember. <laughs> but the first year of our second year, uh, or first day of our second year, we had to go get our medical school textbooks. And it was a student run uh, bookstore. And it just a very small room. And it was open for 45 minutes a day over lunch. And if you got in the room within the 45 minute window, you could get your textbooks. And if you didn't, you'd have to come back the next day and get your textbooks. So I'm standing in line with some of my girlfriends and we didn't really think there was any way we were going to make it in that day. But at the last second, the girl is coming to close the door and my now husband, Eric, scooted over so that my girlfriends and I could get in. Because, of course, he had this ulterior motive, right? Because he had wanted to meet me. <laughs> so, he, yeah, he scooted in. We got in. And I didn't even bring my book list. So I didn't even know what books I needed. Hmm. So it's, it struck up a conversation with him because we're the same year. And he was showing <laughs> me which books that I needed. So, and he seemed like a nice guy. And then the next day, I show up to Pathology Small Group. And there he is in my small group. And there are only like 10 or 12 people in the small group. So he walks me home that day because we only lived a block apart. And yeah. And then we started dating the next week. And 15 months later, we were married. So wow, it was so kind from, of whirlwind then. <laughs> like cre from creeper to helper to husband. It, it exactly. <laughs> exactly. How well did he engineer that? You know, I know he, he did. Knew the person in the bookstore is like, hey, this is the plan. <laughs> I know this is the plan. It totally worked for him, though. Yeah. <laughs> I say we fell fell in love over you know the microscope looking at liver pathology and things like that. But <laughs> no, I I think that's really interesting because my wife and I met in medical school as well, mm -hmm. and so I I think that provides a little extra an interesting dynamic. And in, um, so the the first kind of stressor, well, not the first, but one of the, one of the major stressors later on was when we were looking at matching. So how did you guys navigate that process or did, or did choices of residency influence that at all? Because your husband, uh, who's in another episode, uh, Eric Larson is an anesthesiologist, your peds. So did you guys couples match? How did, how did you kind of work that out or your interviews and things? We did do a couples match and it was a little challenging because at the time, anesthesia was not filling. It was the time that this Hillary care, which it's hard to even remember back that far, mm -hmm. but there was all of this that anesthesia was going to kind of go by the wayside and they were all going to be mid-levels. And so they were not filling these programs. And it was a little scary for Eric because he needed to obviously be in a good place with good training. Um, so we went through all of these different we interviewed all over the place we went out to the east coast and we interviewed a bunch in chicago and um all of these choices and then we ultimately decided that the best place for us to stay was right there in iowa city so we ended up putting iowa city couples match as our first choice because it had a really excellent anesthesia program with a lot of regional anesthesia which he liked and um and then they had a very good pediatrics program so that's what we put first but you know going down the line i know i think third we had him training in madison wisconsin and me training in milwaukee and us living somewhere in the middle which would have been disaster hmm. you know but uh, it, 
I'm glad it worked out. We ended up being able to stay right there in Iowa City and bought our first little house in there in Iowa City. And it was perfect, really. Yeah. And that's like when, what I said, when we started our family. So, yeah. We had our first child when I was in my, when we were in our second year of residency. And then pediatrics is only three years and anesthesia is four. So I stayed around there an extra year. I did a little bit of locums, but for the most part, I had our second child and was able to be home with him for a while until we um, moved to Michigan. And, yeah. and one, one kind of a little bit extra on there, because of course I'm fascinated because we have similar experiences because we had our first child during internship. Mm-hmm. We had our second child uh, during residency. My wife did family medicine. I did anesthesia. So mm-hmm. um, the debate is always, when's the best time to have kids? And so what were, I mean, ultimately you, you did it during residency, but did you find that challenging or do you think that was better knowing what you know now about early practice environment? Like if you were, you know, someone listening to this who maybe is mm-hmm. in residency or medical school and thinking, well, how am I, I'm already trying to learn all this stuff. I have to match residency and I'm kind of thinking about starting a family. Um, what do you think? Like what, in your opinion, what do you think is the, is the better time to do it? I mean, it was not easy for sure. <laughs> I actually, we got pregnant our first year, our intern year, but I, we had a miscarriage. So that was certainly hard too. We were just like 13 weeks. So I had just started kind of telling people and I miscarried. Uh, and then we ended up getting pregnant again and having our daughter a year to the day after the miscarriage, which was also my husband's birthday. So I miscarried on my husband's birthday, which I felt like was the worst thing. And I was going to ruin my husband's birthday forever. And then the next year we gave birth on that very same day. So that was kind of a beautiful thing to have that happen, but it was hard. We fortunately being in that university environment, there was a daycare that had super extended hours that they could, they opened at six something in the morning and didn't close until after seven, seven or 8 PM. So you could have your child there for a long time. And then we had a little code on, on our pager system as to when we were done, we would send a little code code to each other as to who was going to go to the daycare and pick up our daughter And then there was one month that I was in the NICU and he was in the SICU and it it just honestly wasn't going to work. We weren't going to be able to do this because I was on call every third night and he was on call quite often as well. And um, actually, I think it was that I was working nights. That's what it was. I was working nights and he was on call like every third night. So we had a friend of mine who was, is a poet who has a pretty flexible schedule because she is actually a professional poet. She moved into our house and lived there for a month and took care of our baby girl while Eric and I worked and I slept in the daytime and she just watched her. She wrote some very beautiful poetry about my daughter, actually. (laughs) I say to this day, that's why my daughter turned out to be such an excellent writer is that one month that she was cared for by a poet. So, (laughs) wow. That's super, super creative in a couple well, of ways. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, you know, we had my second and still we're just busy, right? And Eric's working and I was done with my residency now, but we had to have this whole plan as to 
which whichever day of the week I went into labor on, we had this person that was going to be able to take our daughter and uh, all this stuff. So it ended up when I um, went into labor, I of course called my OB who was another resident. We had started at the same time. And so we were close. And that day of the week, her husband was the one who was like on call to take our daughter. So we had to get a hold of her, not only because we needed her to deliver the baby, but we needed her husband, even more importantly, to take care of our toddler because Eric was like down with her in the hospital cafeteria trying to eat breakfast waiting for him to show up for the for the two of them to show up for her to deliver the baby and for him to take our toddler so <laughs> oh my goodness crazy but you're right you have to think outside of the box right crazy. and it's just so crazy we just didn't want to wait until it, we were in our 30s and then start the family we were excited to start a family and so if you're excited you just get creative and you make it work and that's what we did and i think that's important though because you know it, it, there's a lot of delaying, right? People, delay, they're going to perfect, perfect time. And I finally come to the, to the, you know, the, you, you just, there's never a perfect time. I mean, no. I, outside of regular life, I don't think there's a perfect, perfect time, but if you're a physician, there's like, there really isn't a perfect time. So you do what you need to do when you need to do it and it's done. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And I, of course, you know, you see all those statistics about how your fertility rates start dropping and then you get panicked. Like if I wait too long, will I have trouble getting pregnant? I, mm -hmm. It's easier to just maybe go now and deal with it, right? And figure it out. So. Yeah. And, and if you have a residency program that facilitates that, that always helps too. Like, yes. We, yes. Were, you know, we were pretty lucky. My, you know, and I think certain residents, I mean, I'd be shocked if pediatrics was hardcore and mean about pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Well, and I took some time off, obviously. And because Eric's residency was a full year longer than mine, then I was able to take off. Mm. I, well, I ended up having preeclampsia and going, having to go spend the last week or 10 days in the hospital. So I had about seven weeks off, like a week or so before, and then six weeks after. And so I just ended my residency almost two months late mm -hmm. because it really wasn't going to be a big deal because Eric was going to be there anyway. So it yeah. worked out pretty well. And you're right. Pediatrics of anything. They love babies, obviously. So they're more understanding <laughs> than probably some others might be. Oh, new patients come in. Yeah, yes, is, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the same vein as um, we're kind of speaking of family and, and making babies and all of this, I was, I was thinking it might be uh, worthwhile just tapping into this idea of, um, you know, like Kevin is married to someone who's a physician and you are, and I'm, I'm married to someone who's not a physician. We don't have children. Like we don't have all these elements that, um, you know, you and Kevin have in similarity, but I'm wondering mm -hmm. your take on the pros and cons of being married to a physician versus a non-physician. Any, any take on that that you think is good or not so good? Yeah, I, I thought it was really good because we could understand each other and understand what we were going through. I mean, when we were medical students, our date nights oftentimes was just sitting in a quiet space and studying. And we didn't have to um, you know, have, I just don't think it was easier because we understood that's what we had to do. We had these exams coming up. We would study. Uh, there was somebody that we graduated with 
who I had gone to college with, and he ended up becoming an anesthesiologist. So he knew Eric better. He obviously going in knew me better. And he dated a girl in college. They got married right before he went to, went to medical school. And I remember this girl talking, just overhearing her, how she was bragging, how she, she was marrying this guy and he was going to be a doctor and they were going to have all this money and all this stuff. <laughs> And it didn't make it past about the third year of medical school. I mean, their marriage just did not last. It was just, I think, a big thing to overcome. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, by the time he got into residency, he ended up marrying a nurse from the hospital who kind of understood things much better, right? So he ended up with a completely different person. And then I became friends with her and helped her with breastfeeding their first one since I had done so. And so just, we could just see that, right? You can see, and so many couples ended up getting married within our medical school class. It, another funny story with us is we got married in the middle of our third year of medical school. And I, of course, had two roommates and he had a roommate and we were in the middle of our lease and we didn't want to give up our lease, but we really wanted to get married. So he asked his roommate if he would be willing to move into my room and live with my two roommates um, who were also in medical school. Well, it turns out he ended up marrying one of my roommates. So <laughs> they didn't even know each other really before that day. And they kind of went out to dinner right before, and then, yeah, eventually they couples matched and got married. So, yeah, it is, it, you're, it's just you're bringing back all these memories that I had totally forgotten about. Yeah, you know. when is your anniversary? I just have to know. Uh, December twelfth. Okay, because ours is January twenty first. Because it was the middle of our third year that we ended up getting married, <laughs> and and all those those kind of concerns and and things. But I and I think that's an interesting point, though, and an important point that you made, Melissa is again just like the, the the child thing there's never necessarily a good time but being a physician and this has been a common theme in a lot of our episodes you simply don't know what it really is like until you're in the midst of an experience and have it is very difficult i think for somebody who's not in that environment to truly understand what it's like mm -hmm. so if you I, I can just see if someone was married before medical school and all of a sudden they're losing their spouse right and they think yeah. well, you're not spending time with me it's not because they don't want to spend time with you. It's because there is such a huge demand on their time. Mm -hmm. um, not, that can be very, very challenging for people who don't kind of have that experience built into it to really understand it, to process and understand where their spouse or significant other is coming from. Yeah, and I think Eric and I did a very good job when we were in our rotations and doing stuff. People did not even know that we were married. We were very much professional that way. Uh, we were in our psychiatry rotation in our third year of medical school and we were getting married on December 12th, a, a Saturday. And our psychiatry exam was supposed to be on the 11th. And so we went to the program director and asked if there was any way we could take the exam on the late in the day on the 10th instead, because our families were all coming in on the 11th. And we said, yeah, could we take that test a day early, like at four or five o'clock? Would that be fine? We're getting married. And the response was, to each other? <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're getting married to each other. 
start because they had no idea. You know, <laughs> our, our first rotation together, I had, uh, this is months before that, but we were engaged already. We were in neurology and I had a horrible migraine. It was just absolutely terrible. And I was really going to have to go home early. And they, of course, saw that I had an engagement ring on and said, well, can somebody come get you? Can your fiance come and get you? And I look across the table where Eric is sitting and I just said, no, he can't. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that's him. I just like, no, he can't. I can make it home. I'll just walk home. And Eric said nothing either. I mean, we just didn't. That is so funny. And then another time we were in our internal medicine rotation and we, it was in a way rotation. We went to Des Moines and we were sitting there waiting to do rounds with the attending and the attending looked at Eric's name tag and then looked at mine and then back to Eric and then back to mine. And then he gets this tiny little smile on his face and he said, are you married to each other? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yes, we are. (laughs) So we just never really let on to people. They would figure it out eventually sometimes and sometimes didn't, but. That's you didn't have anybody crazy. go, you know, it's really funny. You guys both have the same last name. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so bizarre that they had no idea. I know. It's so crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we could, um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about your story as it pertains to your private practice in the last few years and how things shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind taking that story there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Things were good here, right? I went into private practice and pediatrics and my husband is in private practice anesthesia. We ended up having another baby after we came here. So we had three kids. We had uh, one biological or one foster son as well. So three biological children, one foster son. And I felt like things were good. Like life was good. And one day, um, August 15th of 2018, we were on our way to a minor league baseball game here in Grand Rapids. And it was an office event for me, actually. Our pediatrics office had rented out a deck of the baseball stadium and that we could get unlimited food and it was just going to be a really fun time. And originally, I was just going to go with the boys because Eric was on call. My daughter had a violin lesson and my foster son was working. So I was just going with my 14-year-old Andy and my 12-year-old Peter. And I remember asking Peter, like, do you want to go? And he said, I think it'd be a great mother-son thing to do. So we decided to go ahead and do it, even if Eric couldn't go. And then at the very last second, it was just a really slow day in the OR. And suddenly Eric got out early. And so I asked at the office if there was an extra ticket and they said, yes. And so it was going to be this super fun event. And my son, Peter, didn't eat like all day because he was saving up room in his stomach. Mm -hmm. And my son, Andy, uh, was, had just made the JV soccer team for his brand new high school. He was in orientation and he was at soccer practice and he came home from soccer practice and the four of us get in our minivan and are on our way. And things were good. You know, I feel like we were in such a good place with the family. And then we were 
as we were in that exit lane, a woman was distracted when she was driving. She was flying down the road at highway speeds, even though we were in an exit lane and there was construction and she plowed right into the back of our van. Um, I, I lost consciousness. Peter lost consciousness. Eric remained conscious, but um, Andy ultimately died. Um, Eric tried for quite some time to revive him and I came too. And it was just this horrific nightmare to have. And, and so hard being a physician who cares for people, right? Eric's an anesthesiologist. This is what he does. He intubates people. He puts in IVs. He like, basically, you know, as you know, when you put someone to sleep for anesthesia, you sort of kill them and then bring them back. So he certainly thought he could bring Andy back. I'm a pediatrician. I take care of kids. This is what I do. And yet I could do nothing to save Andy. So that was crushing. And you just feel like you have this huge hole. Um, I tried to go back to work after about six or eight weeks. Eric went back after maybe three weeks or so, and he encouraged me to go back. He thought it would be good for me to get back to my patients, but it was incredibly hard because I do pediatrics and everywhere there was a reminder, right? Everybody, every soccer player, every set of brothers, every buddy um, wearing a Michigan State sweatshirt, which was his favorite team, they all reminded me of Andy and all these like whole families and suddenly having to talk to crying moms about how they can't get their kid to sleep or some of these or somebody who's had the sniffles for three hours I just couldn't do it I just I cried between every single patient for weeks and I just had this fog too I mean I, I felt like I wasn't remembering medications like I should I wasn't coming up with medical terms like I should I now know that's just kind of a grief brain that you just kind of get and so ultimately I had to take a leave of absence and leave practice, um, which that was almost a full year that I left pediatrics. It was just too difficult. Um, so several months after I had left, I started thinking about finding a way to kind of help myself and help myself be able to start to heal. And my husband does a podcast and I thought, Certainly there's a podcast for grieving parents. There's a podcast for everything, right? I will find a podcast and I'll start listening to that and see if I can get some help and insight from that. And I looked and looked and I could find nothing. And Eric came home and I said, I have been looking for a podcast on grief and there, I don't think there is one. And he thought I was crazy, right? So he starts looking and looking and he goes, no, you're right. There isn't one. And I said, I think I'm supposed to start one, which is so unlike me because I am not, he's the podcast person. I don't even listen to podcasts. Why all of a sudden I thought I should do one. And then Eric, of course, really started encouraging me and that I think 
this is what you're supposed to do. I think you're supposed to do this podcast and try to help families and help other parents. And so ultimately I did. I, it was almost a year ago now. It'll be um, a year in just a couple of weeks that I started my podcast and launched it. And on my podcast, I primarily speak with parents who have lost their kids with moms and dads. And I've got an expert that comes on every few weeks too. And we talk about a different aspect of grief. You know, occasionally there'll be an author. Um, sometimes someone, people who have lost their siblings, but through that, I really kind of found my way again. And I found that I was able to really help these parents and help normalize what they're going through because you just feel so isolated and alone. You are not supposed to outlive your children. That's not the order of things, right? And, and I thought I knew grief. I mean, I told you at the beginning of this podcast, I lost my mother. I thought I understood what grief was like and I was wrong. Losing your child is so much different. You know, I've heard it said that losing your parents is like losing your past and losing your spouse is losing your present. Losing your kids is losing your future, losing part of yourself. And it just was entirely different. And I needed to find something to do to be able to get through that grief, work through that grief and help other people because ultimately that's what I am, right? I'm someone who is a caregiver. I care for families and I wanted to help care for broken families that I didn't even know. So that's what's happened. And my podcast is now, I've been in every state and I think, 40 or 50 countries. And I have people contact me from all over that want to be on. I have people reach out and say, your podcast has been a lifeline. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get out of bed until I listened to an episode. And that made me be able to get out of bed this morning. I mean, those types of stories I hear. And then for me personally, it gave me something to do with my grief, something I could do with Andy, the two of us together, that ultimately made it possible for me to go back and practice medicine and be a pediatrician again, because I could separate that out a little bit. You know, overall, I actually think I'm a better pediatrician than I was before, because I just have this insight and understanding pain even more. And now, if I see someone who whose child's had the sniffles for a few hours or a fever for two hours, I'm actually more sympathetic because I think about, wow, you must really be worried, right? That, that is a really worried parent who feels like they need to bring their child in that soon. And my job then is to try to comfort them and decrease that worry because Ultimately, I'm not worried about the three hours of sniffles at all, but I need to get the parents so they're not worried about it, you know? Yeah. 
Such a powerful perspective shift. Um, when you're saying that is, I mean, grief is so, you know, grief, I'm trying to remember the actual uh, quote from Khalil Gibran's, the prophet where he, but the, the summary is basically is like grief and pain. They, they carve these furrows in your soul, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's, because of those furrows where your joy starts to fill in again, that is carves a space where you can, you, you can really appreciate these things that perhaps we didn't see as much before or, or reach out to other people in other ways. Cause when you, when you were talking about, you know, that, when you talk to pediatricians, they're also like, it's the parents you have to worry about. The kids are always fine. And the parents are yeah. there. It's only three weeks of, uh, you know, three, three hours of sniffles or whatever, but I, yeah. I just love that perspective and how much empathy and compassion has come out of this where you can now say, instead of, oh, that, pa- that parent is overreacting, it comes, just look how concerned they are. Yeah. How much do you want to protect this child? And um, I think that's a, it's definitely a powerful lesson for a lot of us who can get burned out in these systems. And we feel like oftentimes that patients are taking away from us. You mm-hmm. know, that, that, um, and to just recognize that everybody has, you know, that's, that's a, those three, three hours of sniffles for them can be, a big deal and right. it's up to our, you know, our perspective as to how can we facilitate and help them through that. It's not, it's not a judgment of us, really. We shouldn't be judging them. We should be really caring for people. So, mm-hmm. and I, every grieving parent I've talked to has said that they're a more compassionate person after they lost their child. And you know, not one of us would, wouldn't exchange that back. I would much rather have my son and be less compassionate. But because I did lose my son, that is a result. And really, I think all of us are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, thinking about the fact that you're a physician, especially a pediatrician, and you found that there was nobody doing a podcast on this topic, not to the degree that you were looking for, it makes me think of, of just how so many people weren't willing to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that despite the fact that no one would want to go through what you went through, neither would you, mm-hmm. and, and the pain that you had to endure, the fact that you are in a sense, from what I'm getting from you is a sense of purpose and mission that this is what you're intended to do because of what has happened to you. Mm-hmm. It seems like you've, because I think of just our training as physicians and what we have to endure just merely from a training perspective, aside from the emotional aspects of family and relationships, just what we deal with. I. I almost think in the canvas of your life and what you endured with losing your parents and your mother at that time and your training and then the pain of losing your child, it, it, it just shows me the strength, you know, the, the kind of person that mm-hmm. was needed to put themselves in that space where not a lot of people are willing to go. And I'm, I'm super grateful for, it could be any of us, that could go through what you've gone through. And um, I'm just really glad that you have that out there. And it's andysmom.com for, is that yeah. .com, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. For those listening. And um, I listened to the episode you did as a guest with your husband um, on his podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have in the show notes. But um, I, I just couldn't help but think about how it took someone 
to have the strength and the courage and the tenacity. And it probably didn't hurt that your husband had already kind of started a podcast. You probably had this, you know, the microphone and, and kind of knew. Oh yeah. yeah, We had absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And he he said, even now he does a great podcast. His podcast is on healthcare, but he will tell anyone who asks that he feels like the reason that he started his was that I would have mine because Mm -hmm. he feels like, mine is so important and can be so valuable to people. So. Yeah. yeah. He did. He did actually say that in the interview. So <laughs> it was well, exactly what he said. But it, but it is such an important piece because you, you, you also said one of the, those factors with grief is the, how isolated you feel. Mm-hmm. And, and when you are going something so horrific and you feel like you're the only person in the world who's experiencing that, not only are you dealing with the trauma, but that lack of connection, I think, as humans is it's just so profound. So the fact that you went out and you provided a space out there for families that, that, that know that, yeah, this is horrible, this is awful, this is, feels like unbearable, but you can bear it, and here's others who have. Mm-hmm. Just so and powerful. The other key thing is to be okay with sitting in this sad, dark place. Because so many people feel like they need to make you feel better. Mm. Like they need to say, oh, this is all part of God's plan or, oh, he's in a better place. Or, I mean, I had, I had one phlebotomist. We, my son got his blood drawn and he, they asked, she asked how many kids or how many brothers and sisters he had. And of course he gets kind of teared up and he says he has a sister. And she said, you don't sound happy about that. And I said, well, he had a brother who recently died and she, her response back was, well, you've got to look on the bright side. And I thought, okay, there's really no bright side here. It should have been, I'm so sorry. Right. Mm -hmm. And just leave it and not feel this pressure. Like you have to try to make it better because no one will make this better. You just need to live through it and start to get better on your own with time, bits of healing. You can't tell someone to be better. You need to kind of show it and live it instead. Yeah. So when I see people further along in the journey than me, and I see them doing well, that gives me hope. It doesn't give me hope to have someone say, oh, he's in a better place. Because my response back in my head is, but I want him here. Yeah. I don't care. right now. Right. Or we had a wonderful funeral service and it was very God honoring and Andy had a strong faith and people would say, wow, that funeral service brought people to Christ. My response back was that wasn't the point and I don't care. We had that funeral service because that honored my son in the best way that it could. And it showed who he was and what was important to him. And if it brought people to Christ, great. But that was not the goal. You know, I wasn't having some altruistic kind of goal here. I am missing my boy. And so to have people kind of say those platitudes, I think bothered me so much too, which is another reason to start the podcast. The podcast is for grieving parents, but it's also for just other people who know someone who lost their child. And I've had a ton of 
those people reach out to me too, just to say, wow, that was really helpful. I know it's much better for me to sit next to them in silence now to say, I have no words for you. I know I can't make this better right now, but I'm here. I'm showing up and I'm going to come tomorrow and ask you to go for a walk or I'm going to offer to do this for you, but I'm not going to say these platitudes that will make you just angry because trust me, every parent that hears those platitudes gets angry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you make me feel this sense of, um, and I think it's a lesson for all of us and feel free to correct me, but I feel like in this day and age where there's a lot of busyness, there's a lot of distraction, there's a sense of not wanting to be uncomfortable and getting your way and having things the way you want it and just having, trying to have as much positive feeling all the time. And I feel like the biggest lesson for a lot of us is just to truly, to, to be aware and I identify the feelings and, and, and be present, whether it's in mm-hmm. somebody else that's going through something such as grieving the loss of you know, tragic loss of your son and being okay with that. And knowing that this is a process that you just, you need to be present for that person and ever, whatever way they, yes. they need you. And I, because of that, I think you willing to take on this podcast knowing that you are reliving in in a very vocal global way literally a global way what you had gone through and and reliving that over and over again i know there's some people out there that would not want to put themselves in that place but do you think it's because you have come to terms with feeling those emotions and mm-hmm. and being okay with it that I guess I'm curious about your, your outlook on going through this kind of project or, or this mission or um, for the world. How do you see what you're doing and how does it, um, does it, does it make it, does it make it easier to heal or do you feel like there's times where it's hard to relive those moments? There are certainly episodes that I do that are more difficult than others right? There are episodes when I talk to parents where I can feel pretty down afterwards, but overall, it is so encouraging to me. Recently, earlier this summer, I was a guest for a group of third-year medical students that were just starting their clinical years, and I talked about compassion and medicine, and I talked about my story and about just needing to be that way and to be present for your patients and to know that you are not going to always be able to make things better and to be able to be comfortable with that, with the fact that you can't always fix it, especially emotionally, if you can be emotionally present to patients. That was very powerful to them. I mean, we had some very nice feedback. Some med students that had overall been starting to get even a little bit disillusioned with medicine, that they had gone in with this idea that they were going to be able to be compassionate and help people. And then as things were going, it was like, oh, this isn't what medicine is like at all. Mm -hmm. And now to hear me talk about it, then they realized, well, it still can be. 
and it probably is better than it is. You know, I think back to my residency and we lost patients. I had kids die, obviously. And I felt like forever there was one patient that I really messed up on, right? Because for the most part, I stayed solid. I did not shed a tear. I stayed strong. I felt for the families, but I was tough. And, but there was one family where I took care of this girl on and off for a year because she was in our peds ICU for a year. She was a hard patient. And so I got to know this family. Well, I would talk to the parents at nighttime and um, you know, when the middle of the night and we we're on call, I would chat with them. And so I got close to them. And so that little girl died when I was taking care of her, but it was about an hour and a half before I came in in the morning. So I walked in that morning, totally unsuspecting and she had died. And her mom was in there holding her, holding her, you know, dead one-year-old. And I was like, I got to go in there. I mean, I know this family well, I've got to go in there. And I went in there and I started to cry. Mm -hmm. And I hugged that mom with her dead baby between us. And I felt like this, I am screwing this up so badly. And I remember her saying to me, Marcy, you're going to be an amazing general pediatrician. And in my mind, what I thought she was saying was, man, you screwed this up. You better not be an ICU doc because you are crying. But that wasn't what she was saying at all. What she was saying was, you feel for your families and your patients so much that you're going to be a great doctor to them someday. And I did not know that, that that is what she meant until my own son died. And all of a sudden I had this revelation of that's what she really meant. Because I've talked to other parents whose kids have died in the hospital and you know, one whose baby died of heart problems and they went back to visit and they saw the cardiac fellow and she started to cry in the hallway and she said, oh, I told myself I wasn't going to do this. I'm so sorry I'm doing this. And to that mom, who's a friend of mine, she was like, that was the most amazing gift to me to see her cry and to see that she cared and that she still missed us. And she missed Blake. That was her little boy's name. And so it just, it changed everything about what I thought was important to be a doctor. Now, that being said, you can't fall apart and be a puddle and have your patients feel like they need to take care of you, right? You have to still show some strength and be able to be the one that they are hugging and that they are turning to. But to show that humanity and the fact that you care is actually helpful to those families and not a sign of weakness. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of speechless for a second. Um, I mean, I, I just kind of, that just kind of hit me in the core because I've had a few encounters myself that way. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the stoic is the traditional aspect of me, but um, deep down I'm an empath and um it's it's really hard to just see the pain in somebody else mm -hmm. um and it almost feels like a like a necessity at, at some point you feel like you've got to show that um yeah 
it just it's important. and i think to the families they really do appreciate it i mean mm-hmm. i know that it's it's important to be able to see a little bit of that compassion that you're not just a number to them you're not just a diagnosis to them you're not going to go home and just be the same after uh, seeing their loss that they meant something to you yeah and i think that's such a hard part about medicine is um how how do we express compassion you know we want to express compassion and you, but do you think about some of these moments that we're put in mm-hmm. it where you it, there's this kind of strength and compassion mix that you have to have and a lot yes. of times we haven't learned it no you know we we, we and we and you're going to be put into it if you go into medicine it will happen at some point but really we have not at least again, in my medical school I mean, we don't you don't really have a chance to really truly understand what that means and I, you know, when we see this war where people are put up the walls and like, well, I am the physician. And so my, how I'm going to uh, benefit my patients is become the wall, mm-hmm. right? Where they can break their grief upon, or like you said, I, I just love that, that balance. What you're saying is you have, you know, you express compassion, but your compassion is there for your patient. And if it goes too far where your patient now has to take care of you yes. as a physician, that's probably when we've kind of reel it back a little bit and sort yeah, of. Yeah, you have to, you can't, I. I've had that as just a grieving mom, not with other physicians, but with other people. You know, when I have other people come up to me and now they're sobbing and I feel like I'm supposed to comfort them, that's a mess, right? I, that shouldn't happen. Um, I think back to just a friend that we have that, who really fell apart to us. It made like my daughter feel super uncomfortable. It made me feel super uncomfortable. You can't make the that family member feel like they have to take care of you uh, at all. But so it's the balance. It's the balance of strength with compassion. And that's why I spoke to those medical students um, in Chicago this last summer is to just try to talk about that, about showing strength with compassion and not just this strength, turn off all the emotions. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you can show your feelings, but not lose yourself. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. Kevin, any last question? (laughs) I think this is officially our longest, (laughs) most wonderful interview. We can talk so long, but I I do want to respect your time. And so, so so, um, I want to, there's a couple points that I want to make sure that we don't miss. Your podcast is always Andy's mom, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh-huh. It's it's actually called Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Okay. Eric made me put the losing a child in front of it because he didn't think uh, people may find it if I didn't have that in the front. So that's the title of the podcast, Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Uh, the website is andysmom.com. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I am Always Andy's Mom. All right. And then... Um... I, I think that we'll we'll end it here. Do you have a um, we have the podcast a Facebook page? But if somebody who may be struggling or has questions for you, is there a way that you would prefer they contact you? Yes, uh, my email address is Marcy M A R C Y at andysmom.com. and I am happy to talk to people. A lot of people reach out, and I talk to them. Some of them I even text regularly. Parents now and have formed 
beautiful friendships with people in other parts of the country. If you want to share your story, I love to share stories. That is really what I'm doing here. People love to talk about their kids. And our biggest fear as grieving parents is that our children will be forgotten. So one of the things that I can do for parents is I can give them a platform to talk about their child again. This is why I'm always Andy's mom, because in other aspects, I'm not called Andy's mom anymore. I'm Peter's mom. I'm Catherine's mom, but I'm not called Andy's mom. So it's to remember that I am always Andy's mom and to be able to, those moms that can write and sign their name as Nathan's mom or Chris's mom or Abby's mom one more time. It's just beautiful. And for me to be able to help them share their stories with the public so people can hear about their amazing children, it's, it's just a gift that I feel like I'm able to give. And, and parents love it. They love to be able to tell, talk about their kids. Mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic thank episode. Um, I just love talking to you and in hearing all your experiences and your knowledge, you know, wisdom that you've learned through these experiences. And yeah, you know, um, so thank you. Just thank you. Yeah. So much. Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, thank you know, you. I we'll, we'll think of something. We're going to bring you back. So okay. I'm getting you on right now. <laughs> We're going to have you back for something. Um, but everybody else out there, I, I appreciate, you know, I hope that you got as much or even half as much as I got out of this episode, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, certainly bring a physician gives you a little bit more perspective on this. Um, again, no, this is- one other point, if any of your listeners do have access to medical school students or have residents that they work with, I really do also feel called to try to help with the training of future physicians and helping them kind of try to find this mix of strength and compassion in medicine. So I am so happy to be able to do Zoom conferences or whatever to talk to other physicians in training. So anyway, uh, that would be another thing that I would love to be able to do. You've given so much already, but thank you, thank you so much. And and I and it is it's it's a fantastic resource for something that is extraordinarily difficult and challenging, and we we really don't have that skill set. So I appreciate that you're you're willing to help people through that process. Is is medical students need it, residents need it, physicians in practice need it, and certainly mm-hmm. if you're a parent or a friend of a parent, you're gonna, we're going to need it as well. So I really appreciate that. All right, thank you. And for everybody else out there, uh, this is the Change Physician Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kukar, with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Melissa Cady, and our fantastic guest, Dr. Marcy Larson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com. 